Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. We are celebrating Father's Day this week on the show, uh, which reminds me, happy Father's Day to my dad, Walt Burbank. Also, dad, that shout out is your present. First up, we're going to be talking to Adam Mansback. He wrote the Go the Bleep to Sleep books, which were inspired by his exhaustion as a father of three. Uh, then we're going to chat with filmmaker Maya Forbes about her film Infinitely Polar Bear, which details her father's struggle with mental illness. Now, as it happens, her sister, China Forbes, is in the band Pink Martini, and she's going to stop by to perform a song from that film's soundtrack. Then we're going to wrap things up with some comedy from Kurt Brownoller on what he learned when he became a father. So that is the plan. We've got a fun show in store for you. Don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going real, real good. Hey. You know, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned my dad, Walt Burbank, but since we're doing a Father's Day mm-hmm. show this week, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Tony P. Tony P! <laughs> Your dad, who's also a donor to the show. <laughs> That's right. He's uh, he's the dad of Livewire. That's right. He'll take out the trash and read history books. and He'll read a Tom Clancy book on an iPad. <laughs> yeah. My dad reads good books, though, because he's a Livewire <laughs> member, so he reads all of the authors that we have on here. Right on. Go Tony P. Happy Father's Day to Tony and all the other dads out there. You ready to do the show? Yes, I am ready. All right. Molly, are we recording things? Things are being recorded. All right. Excellent. (laughs) Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, writer Adam Mansback filmmaker Maya Forbes and comedian Kurt Brownholer with music from China Forbes. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Uh, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this fun Father's Day special this week. It's going to be a great show. We have asked the Livewire listeners a question, like we always do. The question was, who is your favorite fictional Father. We're going to get those responses coming up in just a little while. First, though, we got to kick things off, as we always do, with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good stuff happening out there in the world. 
Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? All right, Luke, we got to go back to Canada. But uh, I don't have to call Tim Hortons to know how to pronounce the name of this city. I believe it is pronounced Toronto. Oh, sure. Yeah. I've heard of it. Uh, Toronto, Canada, where there's a dad named yeah. Jamie Alexander who has a 12-year-old daughter named Ruby. And Jamie is not just a dad. He's also an entrepreneur and a startup guy. And he saw an opportunity because his daughter Ruby, who's a trans girl, mm-hmm. was really unhappy with the bikini bottom selection. She wanted to feel more comfortable. When, I, I was about to say when she went to the beach, but I don't know if you go to the beach in Toronto. We'll get some emails to clarify, I'm yeah, sure. But anyway, the, the most important part to know is that Ruby had a request, mm-hmm. uh, a baby suit that she would feel more comfortable in. And so Jamie, the dad, hooked up with an incubator uh, at a local mm-hmm. university of inventors, found a garment engineer, and he re- really wanted to make a bikini bottom that kind of appealed to everybody. It was just kind mm-hmm. of fashionable and cool and awesome. He also interviewed 50 families of trans girls and wow. tested the prototype in 22 families on two continents. And now you can get the ruby shaping bikini bottom the first of many products that uh this dad has made for daughters like his which i just think is awesome that is so great yeah that is a story about really uh sort of great fatherly activities here on our father's day show mine (laughs) it's the best news i heard all week but it's not so much because of what the dad was doing because this dad was not exactly being super great. Uh-oh. Uh he is the dad of a of a young woman in Virginia named Avery. Avery is graduating from high school and uh, Avery's mom and dad are not married any longer and uh, Avery's mom came out one day to find someone had backed a trailer up to the front yard of the house and was unloading a big pile of something onto the front yard of the house. Oh no. And the something was 80,000 pennies because Again? I know we keep getting these this stories is the about people time. <laughs> People trying to spitefully settle debts with pennies. Pennies this are the denomination of vengeance, at, at least of late, I'll tell you what. So it turned out it was Avery's dad paying his last child support payment to oh, Avery's mom God. in 8,000 pennies, so. which I think we could all agree is not exactly keeping it friendly for yeah. the sake of the children. That's crappy. Okay, but here's where it turns into some good news. So Avery and her mom, they collect up all the pennies, take it to the place. It's like 800 or so bucks. That's what like 80,000 pennies is. And they take the $800 and they donate it to a place called Safe Harbor, which is a place in Richmond, Virginia, that helps survivors of domestic violence. Mm. And so not only did they make something really good out of this kind of petty and spiteful thing that this dad did, but then other people have gotten into it. And now apparently people from all over the country are donating to Safe Harbor. (gasps) They've raised like more than $5,000 in extra (gasps) donations since this story came out. Oh, good. That's good. (laughs) Right? And hopefully the donations are in larger bills. I believe the donations have been probably mostly through Venmo (laughs) and other digital type things. Here's what I think is really cool about this story is that it would appear that that this this young woman, Avery, is learning something at age 18 or whatever she is mm-hmm. as she's embarking on life that like it's taken me many years to learn, which is like you can't control 
what other people do, Mm-mm. right? Mm-mm. Maybe they maybe they dump 80,000 pennies <laughs> on your mom's front yard, but you can control how you respond to them mm-hmm. and you can make something really beautiful out of something that was really not great. And and she and her mom did that and this place Safe Harbor is the beneficiary of it. So all around, I got to say, this is the best news that I heard all week. Woohoo! You are listening to Livewire from PRX. Okay, our first guest this week might have the record for working in the most swear words into what are sort of ostensibly children's books. Um, He is the best-selling author of Go the Bleep to Sleep and also You Have to Bleeping Eat and now the third book in the series, Bleep. Now there are two of you. (laughs) He's also a novelist and is the author of more than a dozen other books. Uh, Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with the hilarious Adam Mansback. We recorded this back in 2019. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about your uh, latest book here in a minute, but we have to start by talking a little bit about the phenomenon that was Go the Bleep to Sleep. Now, what people may not know is that you were a published author before this happened, right? <laughs> yes, thank you for knowing that. I've been in many situations where people are like, so what did you do before you wrote this book? Notably on the Today Show. Really? Do a little research, Kathy Lee Gifford. Like, come on. <laughs> I've had that thought thousands of yeah. times just when I'm watching TV. <laughs> so so you, you were a writer, but you wrote, I believe it was a Facebook post that really took off uh, and became a kind of a pop culture phenomenon. Yeah, I did, I did write a Facebook post that said, be on the lookout for my forthcoming children's book, Go the F to Sleep. And, you know, in, in writing that Facebook post, I sort of realized that I knew exactly what that book would be. I knew that it would sort of interlace an honest interior parent's monologue with the kind of tropes of a traditional bedtime board book. Bored in, the, in both senses of the sure. word. Right. Like stiff, yeah. but also boring. Also incredibly boring. Like, I would fall asleep. My daughter would not. <laughs> Hence the book. But I sort of kept thinking about it, and later I sat down and in about 38 minutes wrote the book. <laughs> and now, what, what was that like for you? Because you were uh, already a novelist. Elena is a, is a writer as well. Like, you, you, I'm sure, sweated every word in your other books, and this thing you wrote in 38 minutes is what's, at that moment, taking off. What's that feel like as a writer? It's, uh, you know, look, I, I, I would be really kind of a schmuck to complain about having success as a writer of any kind, right? I'm very lucky that this thing caught the kind of tailwind that it did and became, you know, part of the zeitgeist. Would I prefer that it was one of my literary novels? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, would, you know, that would be nice. Um, but no, I really can't complain. And, and also, at the time that I wrote it, I didn't even think it was going to be published. And it, you know, I sent it to one publisher, my friend Johnny Temple, at a small independent house in Brooklyn. To show you how commercial they are, their motto is reverse gentrification of the literary world. Oh, yeah, sure. 
And Johnny and I sort of kept talking about it for a couple of months. We both sort of kept concluding that maybe we were just bad parents. You know? <laughs> but he also kept showing it to people. His wife loved it. I remember very early on, he showed it to the novelist Jonathan Lethem, who hmm. thought it was very funny. And so we sort of never dropped it, but we couldn't figure out basic things like where in a bookstore would you stock this book? <laughs> you know? And eventually Johnny walked it into his local independent bookstore in Brooklyn, and he was like, what, you, what do you think of this and where would you stock it? And they were like, this is hilarious. We'd put this in the parenting section. <laughs> and Johnny called me and he was like, guess what? There's a parenting section. <laughs> you know, confirming our early thesis yeah. that we might just be bad parents. Yeah, if that's the first, um, first time you found out about that, that might be a sign. Yeah. When did you get a sense that this had moved into the realm of, like, cultural phenomenon? Uh, April 26, 2011. Here's why. Because <laughs> the book was not supposed to be published until the following October. But that night, I gave a reading of the book at a museum in Philadelphia where I was living at the time. I wasn't living in the museum, yeah. just in Philadelphia, um, to about 200 people. And it was, like, well-received and the next morning, I thought to check the book's Amazon ranking, and the book was at 125 on Amazon. As a literary novelist, I didn't even know numbers that low existed. Right. <laughs> and by the end of the week, it was number one. And, you know, not to get overly technical, but the book did not exist. <laughs> Had not been printed, was not even like on the slow boat back from China, like did not exist. So we frantically rushed it out to try to get it out by Father's Day of that year, which seemed appropriate somehow. Sure. Um, and the book stayed at number one throughout this entire time. And meanwhile, a PDF of the book that had leaked and it started ricocheting around the internet. So hundreds of thousands of people sort of got the whole book for free and we, were, we thought we were done, but. This is like a Wu-Tang record. Yeah. <laughs> More than like a book for parents about how annoying their kids are at times. Yeah, 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 totally. So that's where it started. Uh, we've got to take a quick break here on Livewire, but don't go anywhere because we will be back with more of our conversation with Adam Mansback in just a minute. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/slash. LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we're listening to a conversation here on Father's Day weekend with the writer Adam Mansback. 
He's the author of uh, Go the Bleep to Sleep and a few other books of that kind of ilk, as well as the best-selling A Field Guide to the Jewish People, which is where we left off when we were talking to Adam at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2019. Let's rejoin that conversation. Uh, you wrote this book along with Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel. How did the idea for this book get started between the three of you? Well, Dave and Alan and I, actually, this is our second book together. This is the follow-up to the hit parody Haggadah that we wrote <laughs> Yes, <laughs> a couple of years ago called For This We Left Egypt. Right. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, met, I met Alan four or five years ago at a book festival the Tucson Book Festival, um, and he and I ended up having dinner. Someone had just, he had just had a grandkid, and someone had sent him the video of Sam Jackson reading Go the F to Sleep. Right. So we ended up hanging out and having dinner. Alan had previously written a book with Dave Barry. Dave Barry was my childhood comedy hero. Oh, my God. Um, I ripped off a Dave Barry column and tried to pass it off as my original humor column in the student newspaper at North Seattle Christian High School. The editor of the paper was like a 43-year-old dad type who yeah. was in the, ex like in the bag for Dave Barry. He immediately identified it as a Dave Barry. I ripped off hundreds of Dave Barry jokes in my high school newspaper. Oh my God, we're kindred yeah. spirits. Yeah, my, you know, my father uh, recently retired. He was an editor at the Boston Globe. And before Dave was in the Boston Globe, as a syndicated columnist, my father would print out his columns off the wire and bring them home for us to read. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, you know, so, so obviously getting to work with him was incredibly disappointing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I wish that I had met him and Alan both back when they were f a little funnier, frankly, you know? <laughs> I really had to do the bulk of the heavy lifting with this book. It comes through. Uh, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book titled The First Jewish Comedian, which sort of tries to tackle the questions, why do we associate Jews with being funny so much? What did you guys arrive at? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've spent a, a good amount of time now trying to kind of parse and figure out what Jewish humor is, right? Is it any joke told by a Jewish person? Is there some essential quality to Jewish humor that you know, we can describe and elaborate on. And I think it's sort of like pornography, like you know it when you hear it, you know? <laughs> I mean, I can tell you what I consider the most Jewish joke. Okay. All right, this is the most Jewish joke I know, and it's divisive. Not everybody, not all Jews like it. Shocking, I know, because yeah. Jews tend to agree on everything That's else. my yeah. experience. Um, so here's the joke. This Jewish guy moves in next door to Rockefeller, and he buys the same car. He hires the same gardener to do the shrubbery. And one day... Rockefeller walks out of his house and he sees this guy and he looks over and he says, hey, you think you're as good as me, don't you? And the Jewish guy looks over, he's like, as good as you? I think I'm better than you. Rockefeller is furious, demands to know why. The guy shrugs, he's like, for one thing, I don't live next door to a Jew. <laughs> I love that joke because I think the way it redirects the anti-Semitism toward the anti-Semite is brilliant. My mother doesn't agree. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's a actually an interesting way into my next question. It's, uh, there's so much anti-Semitism in this world, and so much of it has to do with stereotypes and things like that. And here you are writing this book that's really funny. It's also pretty informative. How do you keep it 
on the, for the radio listeners, uh, Adam is uh, doing a kind of medium minus hand signal on how informative the book is. How do you write a book like this and make it funny but not play into tropes or stereotypes or things that anti-Semites are using to be anti-Semitic? I think that our approach was to kind of tackle some of those stereotypes head on, right? I mean, you're not going to write a book that purports to be about the history and culture of the Jews without talking about anti-Semitism, without talking about stereotypes. So our approach was kind of to play with those things. For example, in the back section of the book, you will find a quiz that you can take to find out whether you are an anti-Semite. And <laughs> no matter what you answer, the answer is essentially yes, right? Like, do you, <laughs> you know, do you believe that the Jews control Hollywood? If you say yes, you're an anti-Semite. If you say no, you're undervaluing the immense contributions that Jews made. <laughs> How dare you? So. Now, Dave Barry, who helped write this book, is decidedly not a Jew. What, like, what's his role in this? Uh, Dave's wife is Jewish. Dave, you know, in honesty, Dave attends far more synagogue than I do. I mean, anybody who's been to synagogue one day in the last 15 years has attended more than I have, to be honest. But Dave's wife is Jewish. His daughter had a bat mitzvah. Dave, uh, Dave was the... Um, the sendak at his grandson's bris. That's Ooh. the guy holding the baby while the moil does the snipping. Um, so Dave is, in many ways, much more qualified to write this book than I am. <laughs> Where does my experience as a part-time Shabbos Goy rank me on the list of things? When I lived in Los Angeles... Also higher than me. I had neighbors, I had neighbors who were Orthodox Jews, and uh, you know, I would sometimes have to come over and turn something on because it was a, it was a, a day where they weren't able to activate technology. Um, you write about a, a film pitch starring a Shabbos Goy in this book. Yeah, I think there's a great action movie to be made called Shabbos Goy, and the general idea is... We're in, like, we're in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, like, you know, a, a, an ultra-Orthodox sect of Jews. Pick one. Um, you know, you can't, you can't turn on a light during the Sabbath. You can't do any work. You can't drive a car. So here's what happens. Robbers break into the Grand Rebbe's house, where they keep all the files, 30 years' worth of records. These people don't use computers, so, like, everything's in file cabinets, sensitive information. They cut the lights off. Nobody can turn the lights back on. <laughs> Infrared goggles. They grab all the files. They escape in a car. Nobody can chase them. Except Shabbos the Goy. Shabbos Goy. Yeah. I can see Ryan Gosling playing that. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me you couldn't sell that in a room. Yeah. You just sold it right here. Um, we're talking to Adam Mansbach. Uh, his latest book is A Field Guide to the Jewish People. Adam, we like to try to get to know our uh, guests on a, on a very real level here on Livewire. And I feel like that's, it's already happened in talking to you. But I think we Absolutely. can take it maybe to an even deeper level. To that end, we have an exercise here uh, on the table in front of me. is an actual physical jar. It's got five questions in it, the essential five questions of our time. We call this the Jar of Truth. Passover, there's only four questions. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the idea is that we'll have you draw a question out at random. Our announcer, Elena Passarello, will read the question, and then, Adam, we want your honest answer. Now, because you're well-known also for your Go the F to Sleep book series, these are questions about parenting. This is the parenting-related jar of truth. But it's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not a swear jar. 
No, it's a, you would have filled it up long ago with your books. <laughs> okay, here's the question. Are you okay with your babysitter eating food out of your refrigerator? Listen, <laughs> I have three children. I have an 11-year-old. The book is, the new book, yes. F, now there are two of you, is an understatement. Yes. I actually have three. I have an 11-year-old, <laughs> a two-and-a-half-year-old, and a 10-month-old. If you're babysitting for me, you can eat whatever you want. <laughs> you can take whatever you want at the end of the night. You can go home with any object I own. As Inclu as including come, the children? You can take two if you want. <laughs> As long as you come and hang out in my house and do not harm these babies and allow me and my partner to go out and have a civilized dinner with each other and not talk about children or anything child-related, I might sign the deed to the house over to you. At the wow. <laughs> Very liberal policy. Okay, next question for Adam Mansback. Okay, uh, Adam, if you have multiple kids, which you do, is it okay to secretly have a favorite one? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, all kids are not the same. You're not going to have the same relationship with them. Personally, I only begin to really, truly bond deeply with my children once they are old enough to make me laugh. Like, my two-and-a-half-year-old is hilarious. My 11-year-old is one of the funniest people I know. My 10-month-old, not so much. So, like, she's cool, we're cool. Right. As soon as she makes a joke, it's a whole other ball game. But right now, the rankings definitely go yeah. like oldest to youngest because my oldest daughter, first of all, poops in a toilet 100% yeah. of the time. Huge. <laughs> Huge upside so to like, that kid. You know, and if you want to even like begin to try to take her crown, you got to do all your pooping in the toilet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what they'd say? Watch the throne. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm subtweeting my two-and-a-half-year-old yeah. right now. Like, yeah. I hope you're listening, Zandon. Well, that's okay. Let me ask you about that a little bit because the, the books, the, the Go the F to Sleep books and the other ones, the, the new one, by the way, is F, Now There Are Two of You, which, as we've learned, is an understatement. Uh, these books are so funny, and I think they're so popular because parents can completely relate to the sentiment. Also, your kids live in the world, and I assume your 11-year-old has some sense of this book, and your other ones will learn about it. How did those conversations go? How do you explain to them that you that you really do love them, even though you write about how on your, la on your last nerve they are. Yeah, well, the conversation with Vivian, my 11-year-old, when Go the F to Sleep came out, was basically like, homie, you know how we live in a house and not a discarded refrigerator carton? This book is the reason why. Yeah. Straight talk from a qualified parent, Adam Mansback. The latest book is A Field Guide to the Jewish People. That was Adam Mansback, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2019. Adam just released a book back in April. It is a memoir in verse. It's called I Had a Brother Once. Also, the Go the Bleep to Sleep three-book box set will be available this fall. Hey, special thanks this episode to Amy Ludke of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Chris Bright 
of Portland, Oregon. Amy and Chris are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it's how we are able to keep doing this. So thanks to Amy and Chris for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We asked the audience a question this week in honor of this being Father's Day weekend. Uh, we asked the audience, what is your favorite fictional father? Elena, you've been gathering up those responses. What are people saying? Well, I don't know if you remember this, but last week I had a prediction that there would be an overwhelming response of one name and one yes. name only. And uh, I, I that name was definitely mentioned, but it was not the most named person. Do you want to reveal who you had guessed it would be? Yes. It's the same person that Burley wrote in. Burley writes, come on, the favorite fictional father has to be Atticus Finch, which huge. That's the, I just figured everybody in this book reading, I mean, who didn't have to read To Kill a Mockingbird? Oh, did mm-hmm. you have to read To Kill a Mockingbird? I in did. And then, I mean, you add to the fact that Gregory Peck plays mm-hmm. him in the movie. I want Gregory Peck to be my father. Yeah. Like, I mean, when you think about the characteristics you might want in a father, just somebody who's just morally solid and takes the high road and all of those things are really encompassed and embodied in the character of Atticus Finch. But not the number one answer. Okay. Would you like to know what the number one answer is? I would. People like Lori wrote in Arthur Weasley. Do you know who Arthur Weasley is? Is that like Ron Weasley's dad <laughs> from Harry Potter? Yeah. A couple of people really think they're favorite. I mean, he is very lovable. He's like obsessed with human inventions and he helps Harry. And then um, some people brought up that he took in Harry and Hermione as if they were his own kids, even though he already had like 6,000 kids. <laughs> so, I mean, that I'll that tell sort you, of makes if sense. your last name is Weasley, you've got to do a lot of work to just overcome that in the larger <laughs> consciousness. And it sounds like he actually did that. Yeah, he wasn't Weasley at all. Uh, All right, what else? This question, I don't know half of the fathers that are suggested. There are a lot of cartoon dads. Okay. Um, uh, (laughs) But Scott uh, listed a cartoon dad that I do know. As a huge Simpson fan, I got to go with Homer, Scott says. Despite not having all the tools, he still tries the best he can, and he is also hilarious. (laughs) That's kind of, that seems like it's sort of a a controversial take to me, because (laughs) part of the whole joke with Homer Simpson is that he is just such a bad dad. I was just watching an episode Uh, recently where it's like in the future and he's trying to help plan Lisa's wedding. Oh no. And every idea he has is just absolutely terrible. And Marge has to get a restraining order to stop him (laughs) from trying to help plan the wedding. And he looks at the restraining order and he says, well, these all appear to be in order. I'll be in the back in a hammock with my beer. (laughs) Like that's Homer's level of parenting. But I guess for this listener, they're down with that. Yeah, well, I guess to be fair, you know, the prompt wasn't the best fictional father. It's the favorite oh, right. fictional father. So Good point. Maybe your favorite fictional father can be wonderfully bad at parenthood. Sure. That's a very <laughs> that's a very good point, actually. All right, one more. 
This one I like in terms of cartoon dads. It's from Dan Bob from Bob's Burgers. He's got that big dad energy that we all need in these trying times. (laughs) I love that show so much, Bob's Burgers. And I love in particular that Bob character. He's, again, not unlike Homer, he sort of isn't always totally effective with what he's trying to do, but man, mm-hmm. is his heart ever in the right place. Uh, yeah, he's a little more cogent, I think, than our friend Homer. Also, it's interesting that that voice is the voice of Archer, the mm-hmm. the James Bond character, and the talking can of beans in Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah, H. John Benjamin, who is the actor who plays all of those voices, and, by the way, released a jazz album, even though he has no formal training in playing music or jazz. Is it good? It's shockingly convincing. <laughs> Google it. H. John Benjamin's jazz album. All right, you're listening to Live Wire Radio from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. We are talking about dads on the show this week. Now, Maya Forbes is a filmmaker, and she had a very unconventional childhood growing up with a dad who was also dealing with mental illness. Uh, her and her sister China's experience, by the way, China is in the band Pink Martini, uh, is all detailed in Forbes's amazing film called Infinitely Polar Bear. It stars Mark Ruffalo playing her dad. Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Maya Forbes. We recorded this at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, back in 2015. Welcome to the show, Maya. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, So uh, sort of paint the picture of the time in your life that the film Infinitely Polar Bear documents. Uh, Your your mom has gone off to school in New York, and your dad is now in charge of, of your care, and he's somebody who's had issues with mental health. What was the scene at that point in your life? Well, the scene was, um, it was pretty chaotic. Um, and I wrote the film because I felt like you go through life, you always see these representations in film where the, of these perfect, you know, you feel like the families are kind of perfect or the, the rough edges have been kind of smoothed out and everything. And I felt like families are generally, they're sort of a collection of extremely flawed people sort of muddling through together and, and arguing a lot. So um, That could be a family crest too, actually. That's pretty good. <laughs> Forbes. Yeah. Um, so it was very um, rocky. Uh, but it was interesting because my father, who was bipolar, um, it ended up sort of being the old... I mean, he, he was not... A, I would not say he was a perfect father, but it ended up being a father was sort of the thing he was best at. Um, and he, uh, he sort of rose to the occasion in his own unique way. How old were you guys at this time, you and your sister, China? Uh, when my mother went away to New York to get her MBA, I was 10, and my sister was 8. What was an average day like with your dad? <laughs> an average day with my father. Um, <laughs> we would get up late. We would race, you know, we would run screaming through the apartment building where we lived. I feel like we were very noisy. You know, we didn't seem to recognize that we were in this world with all these other people around. It might be irritating to hear this family screaming out the window at each other. You know, I'm called the home in 10 minutes. You know, we were screaming a lot, racing to school. Um, then if we forgot something, he would go back home and bring it to us in school. I mean, he was sort of... He was really there for us in a, in a big way. Um, uh, then he would maybe go to work. He was, for a while, he was a superintendent in a, 
in a sort of abandoned building. I don't know why abandoned building needed a superintendent, but I think somebody gave him this job because they liked him and they wanted him to have something to do. Um, so he would do, I fix things in this building uh, that nobody was in. Um, and then he would, sometimes he, he liked to go to the supermarket and get whatever meat was, you know, really like it was the last day. Uh, it was, and, and, um, <laughs> that it would be for sale and he'd get that 99 cents a pound or something and then he would make something actually very delicious he was a very good cook so um, whatever was in the house he was able to sort of pull something together at dinner as uh, a kid though were you able to tell what was going on with him in terms of manic cycles and just where he was at in relation to his mental illness I don't know if I was aware of it we were aware that he was he was overly friendly so that was that was embarrassing to us. He was over. He always was trying to uh, to offer his services to any neighbor who needed anything. You know, beyond. I mean, people he didn't know. Do you need a ride to the airport? You know, um, do you? God, I wish I would have met him. Yeah. <laughs> he was extremely helpful, but people didn't want that. You know, they didn't want a ride to the airport from someone they sort of ran into it saw around the halls in the apartment building. So um, we were aware of that, but we. We knew that he was manic depressive. We knew that, um, but we didn't exactly know what. When you're a kid, you don't know exactly what that means. I mean, I certainly the thing I really didn't know is when he was depressed. I didn't understand that. But we, when he was depressed, it for, sort of he wouldn't be able to do that much for us, and then we were sort of had to do a lot of stuff for ourselves and stuff for him. We're talking to Maya Forbes. She wrote and directed the film Infinitely Polar Bear, which has Mark Ruffalo in it and Zoe um, Saldana. And one of the interesting. Uh, Elements of your family growing up, as explained in the film, is that you guys were really broke, but your dad was from a really rich family? Yes. <laughs> How did the rich family not end up helping you guys out more? Well, it was really confusing because we were living in this dumpy apartment. It was filthy. We had these terrible cars that were always breaking down. Um, and we'd, then we'd go out to my great-grandmother's house. Now, it's my great-grandmother, okay? So she's almost 100 this woman, uh, and she has a butler, and we always had the same meal of roast beef and mashed potatoes and peas and uh, vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce, and she liked to play games with us, um, card games. She was very competitive. Um, <laughs> but uh, nobody in my family ever let you win. Like, they did not believe in letting children ever win anything. So they liked to play with kids, because they, they, they could always dominate. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think she was... I don't think she understood, really, what was going on. I mean, she didn't understand mental illness. Th th that was still the era where they were like, snap out of it. You know, that, that was yeah. sort of the, the like, what are, what, you know, can't you just pull it together? Um, uh, so, I don't know why. It's sort of a mystery. I think it's a New England thing, though. I think it's a bit of a New England waspy thing, which is like, you would give money to anybody but your family. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that's great about the film is the soundtrack. Is, is wonderful, and, and one of the songs on the soundtrack, actually at the end of the film, is uh, performed and written by your sister, China Forbes, from Pink Martini here in Portland, and we yeah. just so happen to have China Forbes here. Uh, we have got uh, China performing and helping out uh, admirably are the guys from Blitz and Trapper, some of the Blitz and Trappers themselves, so um, thanks to them. But actually, Eric, uh, sings and plays on the recording of this song, so it's not just oh, by wow. accident. Oh, wow. I see. I wondered how you, you learned the song that? so fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're actually on the song. Um, what are we going to hear here? This is a song called The Northern Line. It's a song uh, my sister gave me an assignment 
to write a song about a train. And when I was in London on tour and I wrote this song inspired by the tube where you can take the Northern Line to get to Hampstead Heath. So that's where the title comes from.
That was filmmaker Maya Forbes and also her sister, China Forbes, recorded back in 2015 here on Livewire. We recorded that at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Uh, the film Infinitely Polar Bear is available online. I would highly recommend it. It's just really a beautiful film. Uh, China is still performing with Pink Martini. They are going to start touring again this summer. Just one more sign that nature is healing. Pink <laughs> Martini coming to a town near you. And Amaya Forbes has a new film in the works. It's called The Good House, starring Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. Ooh. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, this is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We've got to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we've got comedy from the one, the only, Kurt Brownoller. Stick around. More Livewire coming your way. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we have been celebrating Father's Day this week on the show. And what better way to wrap things up than with some dad jokes? <laughs> Although these are actually really good jokes that are told by a professional comedian <laughs> who just happens to be a dad. So prepare yourself for that. You might have seen him on Late Night. He's also got his own Comedy Central special. Uh, but he's also done some more outside-the-box comedy projects. He once hired a skywriter to write How Do I Land over Los Angeles. <laughs> he jet-skied down the Mississippi River for charity. Uh, he is the best. This is Kurt Brownoller, recorded at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle back in 2019. Thank you, guys. So I just recently became a dad. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a dad now, so my life finally caught up with my looks. Just been looking like a dad for 40 years without kids. It was getting weird, honestly. People were like, that dad seems too drunk. Now it's like, that dad is too drunk. <laughs> and here's something no one will tell you if you have a kid. If you don't have kids and you're thinking about it, here's something no one will tell you. Have a child in a hospital, and then two days later, they're like, take it home. And you're like, no, we live in the hospital now. And they're like, no, you got to take it home. We're like, well, we don't know how to take care of it. They're like, Google it. It's not our problem. And then you're at home with a newborn, and it's terrifying. Like, your first kid, it's like, you, they, like they don't know how to do anything, and you're terrified because you don't know how to do anything. And, like, 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 they don't know even how to breathe. Like, breathing is brand new for a newborn infant. Like, the normal breath pattern for an, a newborn is... <laughs> And then you're just lying next to it all night. You're like, ah! You never sleep and you go crazy. 
but the outfits are worth it. The outfits are worth it. Right after we brought my daughter home, someone gave us a onesie that had four pockets. I was like, what are these pockets for? She doesn't even know she has hands yet. And that's true. Like, a newborn infant, like, has no control over its arms. They don't know they're there. It's like, who is doing this to me? And then you, like, tie them down. They're like, thank you. It's like, why swaddling works? But it's like, what are these pockets for? Her keys? Because her keys are, like, big and plastic, and they're not going to fit in such tiny pockets. I mean, just based on that key size alone, her car is 20 times the size of my car. All plastic, bright red and yellow. <laughs> but, like, what... <laughs> But, like, what designer is just like, all right, what is this, a onesie for a baby? All right, babies, babies, babies. What do they do? What do they do? They're on the go. Uh, They poop their pants a lot. I've got it. Four tiny pockets, one quarter each. They can always use a laundromat. Make it! They're like one inch by one inch. I found it's perfect for a little bag of cocaine. Um, And nobody will frisk a baby. No one will frisk a baby. But also, like, 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 you have a child and then you become a dad, and I think they're two very th- different things. I recently became a dad. Uh, like, there is a, there's a gas station down the street from my house. There's a sign on one of the pumps that says, please replace the nozzle before driving away with it in your car. And I took a photograph of that and posted it on the internet like three years ago, and it was like, look at these jerks driving away with these nozzles in their car. And then me and a bunch of strangers had a lot of fun making fun of all these jerks, you know. And uh, so when I drove away with a nozzle in my car six months ago, I was ashamed. Uh, And I didn't even know I did it. Like, I didn't even know I did it. Like, I hopped in my car, blasting this American life, and just... And took off and yanked it out. I had no idea I yanked it out. And then immediately pulled an illegal four-lane U-turn across four lanes. And all the oncoming traffic was like, bam, 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 bam. And I was like, oh, shut up, you church Nazis. It's a U-turn. I gave them all the middle finger while spraying gasoline across the street. And then made a right-hand turn and got on an even bigger high when I was going very fast. And this guy in his white pickup truck was, like, honking at me. And I was like, it's a U-turn! And he's like, roll your window down. And I was like, what? And he's like, you drove away with the pump in your car. And I was like, what? So I did. Um, And then I was very ashamed. Uh... And I didn't know what to do, so like I kind of I pulled over to the side of the road, and then he pulled over too, and I was, and, and then I got out of my car, and then he got out of his car, and I was like very embarrassed, you know? It's like it's kind of like it's kind of like I soiled my pants, and then he followed me into the bathroom, like, "Hey, did you pooped your pants? What's going on? How much how much poop is in your pants? Can you show me why you why you think you did that?" And I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, do you need help? And I was like, no! (laughs) Then he was like mad. He got in his car and drove away. And then I was alone with my shame. 
And then I kind of like walked over and like took the pump out of my car and I was like, oh. And I like tapped it on the ground. I was like, oh, there's a lot of gasoline still in here. And I was like, I can't put it in my car. I was like, on my way to pick up my daughter. It would have been filled with gasoline fumes. And I was like, what would be very useful right now is a pickup truck. And I just told that guy to go screw himself. <laughs> and so then I just like kind of left my car on the side of the road and walked it back all the way to the gas station. Both managers were just waiting for me like, what's wrong with you? And then I just laid it at their feet like a dead snake. And I was like, what do we do now? They're like, we don't know. There's no form for this. Nobody's ever done this before. And it uh, turns out it costs $350, uh, which is honestly a lot less than I thought. And they're designed to pop off, so you can just do it. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Kurt Brownholler. That was Kurt Brownoller right here on LiveWire. You can see Kurt on tour this summer, or you can check out his podcast, Bananas, which you can listen to in the comfort of your own home. Not that we're not all itching to get outside a little bit. Uh, details on all that are available at KurtBrownoller.com. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, we are going to be talking to Saturday Night Live writer Sam Jay about this new talk show that she has on HBO called Pause with Sam Jay, which is a really cool approach to the kind of late night talk show format. We're also going to be hearing some music from Amigo the Devil. Plus, as always, we're going to be getting your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the Livewire listeners for next week's show? I can't wait for the answers to this one. What is your best advice for throwing a successful party? I feel like that's probably something we can all use a little refresher course on, considering yeah. where we've all been for the last year and a half. All right. If you uh, have an answer to that question of how to throw a successful party, please submit your answers through Twitter and Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of LiveWire. A huge thanks to our guests, Adam Mansback. Maya Forbes, China Forbes, and Kurt Brownoller. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Amy Ludke of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Chris Bright of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many 
many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show. And then we can keep doing this for a long, long time. Because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review. And if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.